Hey there, and welcome back to the Social Life Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peterson, and very much appreciate you all being here. Once again, hope you're having a great summer here in uh, mid-July of 2019. Um if you're into paddle boarding, board paddling of any kind, you Molokai to Oahu, uh, one of the hands down heaviest paddleboard races in the world, coming up in a couple weeks. We just released a nice little series of uh, stories on the podcast, uh, released on their website as well, about that event. A lot of fun, different perspectives from about 10, maybe more actually, 12 ish different um, paddlers, some, some legends in the sport, uh, male and female. It's a lot of fun. Uh, check it out. Uh, in addition, I've got a fun sort of audio story coming up uh, from a five-day surf, dive, spear, fishing trip uh, that I was on with some legends in the water down to California's Channel Islands just a couple weeks back. So that's coming soon too. I'm really excited about it and I uh, hope you guys enjoy that when it's coming out. But for today, I get to do one of my favorite things, which is play um, amateur marine biologist with somebody who is a marine biologist. Today we're talking with Patrick Webster, who is an incredible underwater photographer with an artistic flair for capturing underwater scenes within the Monterey Bay and waters beyond. Now today, Patrick takes us through his transition from underwater video to photography uh, and the community of support he's had around him here in the Monterey Bay that has helped him refine his craft. Um, we hear how Patrick's background with the UC Santa Cruz Marine Science Program has influenced his photography and his focus on telling stories of the scenes and animals he photographs to inspire others. And now Patrick also shares his perspective on developing social media content for the Monterey Bay Aquarium, a world leader in ocean education and conservation, and the importance of relating the ocean world to our everyday lives of people to help us all understand and connect with the ocean, to do something to preserve it and protect it, etc. Right? And finally, Amongst a bunch of other neat things, we hear about an amazing location um, down near the Sea of Cortez, Baja, California, called Cabo Pomo, which is a really great success story of roping off or preserving an area of the ocean to let the natural abundance of beauty and animals replenish itself. A great story there. A lot of killer pictures Pat's got on his Instagram page. Link to in the show notes. Check it out. He's got some just insanely great shots um, from under the water um, and on top as well. So thanks for being here once again. If you like what you heard, would love to see um, some comments on the podcast app, have you give some uh, a rating on your podcast app, but even better, love for us all to reduce plastic uses, pick up some trash, and really make a push all together to help the ocean, right? Get rid of the plastic and trash and whatever else you can do day to day. So hope you're getting out and enjoying the water. With that now, let's get into the ocean life of Patrick Webster. Uh, so, Pat, we were chatting, um, playing kind of email tag to find a time, you know, to, to do this today, this recording. Uh, and I remember one of the last uh, emails you had sent was, hey, you know, we're going to do an evening one, I think. And you got back to me like, hey, I'm down at the beach, just got out of a dive, the light's insane. I think I'm going to stay out to get some shots. And it's like, yeah, of course, for sure. And what you sent back after that was this super sick shot of like an over under kelp with the sunset behind. And, and so kind of start there, man. I mean, your photography is pretty much off the hook in my mind. And uh, so, dude, how'd you get started with all of the photography stuff, you know, in general? Uh, well, uh, first of all, thanks so much for the the patience. And uh, and yeah, thanks for thanks for the kind <laughs> words about the, about the photo. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. The, the photography thing picked up a few years ago when uh, I basically got sick and tired of buying new hard drives for video footage that I was never editing. I actually started off as a, a video editor first, um, which is really just a fancy way of saying that I was diving and I didn't have any projects after graduation. And so I just started bringing my, <laughs> started bringing my GoPro with me and then I started yeah. filming stuff and then I was like, oh, I might as well like do something with these videos. And so for a little bit there, I was making short videos for film competitions and for fun. Uh, and then after a while, I was just diving, filming, offloading, and then not dealing with gigabytes and with right. terabytes of video. And then someone told me, well, you should just start taking photos because then you just have to deal with like maybe one at the end of a dive. And that sounded awesome. So, yeah. um, so I started taking photos um, with a much better camera probably around 2014. Um, I happened to win a cash prize at a video contest, which was a down payment on a legit underwater camera system. And then from there, things just started snowballing, taking more and more photos. And the really great thing about I don't think I'd have a, an underwater photo career or whatever, whatever it is at this point, an Instagram page that I update frequently, if we're calling that a photo <laughs> career now. Um, but I don't think I would I don't think I would have that without the community of underwater photographers that we have here in Monterey, mm. especially because we have Backscatter, this underwater photography store at the end of Cannery Row. Right. It's the last thing at the end of Cannery Row, and it's uh, one of the largest underwater photography stores in the U.S. And mm. um, so just having that resource right there locally where if I have something wrong with my camera, I can just swing on over to them and be like, hey, you know what's going on here? Uh, and then they put on a contest every year called the Monterey Shootout, where it's uh, 36 hours. You go diving starting at Friday, 7 a.m., and then you have to shoot everything, edit everything, and submit everything by Saturday, 7 p.m., and then you find out who won the next day. Different categories, different prizes, video, photo. Oh, cool. And so that is really, um, competing in that is really what got me into uh into the underwater photography thing, which then leads me to um, blowing off podcast hosts when the light just gets absolutely insane. And again, I'm so sorry about that, but no, it was man. definitely one of the best sunsets uh, that I've been able to to witness with my camera and uh, with flat conditions. And those things just don't really line up too frequently. So it was yeah. a, it was a wonderful evening. Oh yeah, and I'm gonna put that shot if it's cool with you in the podcast notes because it's one of those like especially being myself from the area like you and Monterey, Santa Cruz and seeing and diving for a long time and seeing a lot of kelp and it's always so beautiful, you know, and you're like, I'm going to get some shots. I'm like, cool. You know, and then when you sent back, it's like, dude, I've never seen a shot like that. And I've seen a lot of kelp and a lot of sunsets, but those two together was just like, it was like somebody painted it or Photoshopped it, man. It was insane. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Um, it was just one of those feelings where it was like, oh, I think I can sneak in a dive before the call and then just, yeah, um, a friend of mine, Phil, he's, as he always says, you know, sweet mama ocean was hmm. deciding to to show off her her best moves that night. And yeah. uh, it was just it was yeah, it was just glorious. Um, one of the big things about uh, my underwater photography is uh, um, there's just so many people in this area that are just so stoked about ocean time. Like it doesn't even matter what photos we're taking or, you know, what the conditions are. There's uh, there's just a group chat that is like, hey, I'm going here at this time. Love to see you all there. And 
so just having that that drive so that evening i mean right next to me was my friend phil and then over on the other side was my friend dylan and then um those are two underwater photographers then my friend joe placco's on the beach with his girlfriend and the rest of the divers and they're watching Mm. the sunset over there so um it's definitely not a solo thing just getting like super excited so i mean i ran home after uh, after taking that photo to edit it, to share it with the group, like, Hey, check this out. Look, look oh, how yeah. great it was. And, and, That's um, cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the, the big thing too, about, um, my underwater photos is that from that community, we learn a lot of different things. And in particular, uh, we're very fortunate in this digital age to have, uh, access to cameras that shoot in raw file format. And the thing that, right. Uh, the thing that I learned about that, you know, at first I wasn't editing too much you know, with the photos or anything, but once I kind of realized and I was you know, learning from other photographers that spend hours editing their, their photos um, and not just, you know, bumping up the saturation and everything and making it look insane, but like really, really taking the time to, to make it nice. And um, knowing that the camera that we have is a little supercomputer that records all this information. And then uh. it's basically just showing us, what the image looks like based on the settings that we have, but it has so much more information in the file than we see on the screen. And so then in Lightroom, you can go in and see how much information the the camera actually saw. And for a long time, I didn't want to edit my photos too much. I didn't want to like over process, you know, removing backscatter or, you know, painting this rhinophore or something. It just seemed it, it seemed like too much or I didn't know if it was allowed. And then someone showed me a documentary about Ansel Adams and how those are iconic nature photos and talking about how many hours he spent in the dark room, painting stuff out, burning wow. things over here. Re- like they're heavily, heavily edited photos because essentially he's bringing out what his mind's eye saw. And you don't always get that in camera. I mean, yeah. you, you, you try to. And so what I've learned with uh, the um, digital process that we that we have where I can take, you know, a thousand photos on a dive, pick the three or four that I like and then spend two hours editing one is trying to bring out what I see or what I saw when I was diving. Bringing that out from the file is uh, really like that's the creative process outside right. of the outside of the diving. And so yeah. that's really why a lot of the photos that I'm able to take now are quote unquote better than photos that I took previously is that I I'm allowing myself to play with the pixels a lot more right. than previous and just always trying to keep an eye on, you know, is it true to the animal? Is it true to your experience? Right. Or if you're heavily going into the editing, um, is it true to your to your vision about what what you're trying to tell and um and so that's that's another aspect of the photos that's developed over years is that understanding of like what what i'm seeing in the in the file so yeah um, yeah so anyway. no, that's that I, I get it and that's cool there's like two different sides to the creativity that you have and that you basically employ one as you just mentioned is at home with your laptop or your computer, you know, looking at what the photos got for you to do with it or can allow you to do with it to bring out and tell the story you want to tell. But then there's also like when you're taking the shot itself, like you're lining something up, like you had a sunset and you had kelp and there was a bit of creativity that you also have there to line the shot up. And there's another 
another really cool one that I think is a blend of both. And I'm, I'm, I've been kind of just sort of obsessed on your Instagram. I'm looking at all these rad <laughs> photos of, of animals that are near and dear to me being in my own backyard. And there's one um, that is this little tiny vermilion rockfish and behind, and he's orange and he's got some white on him and mm-hmm. behind him, it's just, it's just black, not black. It's yeah. gray, you know? And yeah, maybe it was the strobe and the light just lit him up and everything behind him was dark, or maybe there's a little manip- manipulation regardless. Mm-hmm. It was like, I think there is like, a, there's a lot of art artistry that, that you employ as you're underwater, as you see these things, as you see the animals or as you see the, the shape of the kelp, and then you get to, use like your technical skills to kind of really draw that out, you know, back home. So, so talk about like lighting shots up, being underwater, seeing things. I mean, I know it's kind of opportunistic. You're kicking around and you see something. Um, but you know, how, where does that kind of come from with you? I mean, you have a marine science background, which we'll get into. So you know the animals, but like, I don't know, is there a kind of philosophy that you kind of have about what you're, what you try to do when you're underwater with lining up these really kind of cool shots? Oh, wow. Um, well, first of all, thanks for the kudos on the vermilion rockfish. Uh, vermilion rockfish are my favorite fish to see underwater. Um, they yeah. are just so ornery and skittish at the same time. Like, they're just such a hilarious right. fish where they're just so territorial. They come right up to you. And then when you don't back down and you lift up your camera rig, they're like, whoa, okay, man, hey, calm down, calm down. Like, <laughs> we don't have to go there. And then, like, And then so they just kind of circle back towards you over and over. So as a photographer, you can kind of, you know, judge what the background is, work on your settings so that you you can kind of get that that feel. And then you can just kind of watch a fish uh, or watch an animal and kind of realize, like, where is it going? What's it going to do? Like when you're watching a nudibranch, there will probably be a moment where you arrive over it. Your shadow goes over it or your light does and they're very very light sensitive as far as like hey if a shadow comes over me then maybe that's something uh that's trying to nip at me and so they'll they'll usually retract their gills um Mm -hmm. to start and so then what you want to do is uh you know you want to wait calm down like assess and then just be super chill and wait and then the animal gets comfortable and then opens up its gills again and then the you can get the photo with the vermilion there i mean he was just this ornery little little like freshly settled adult looking fish, you know, had his adult colors yeah, uh, and just kept circling back at me. So I just waited and waited and then eventually it got one where I was looking straight into the camera. Um, and yeah, I mean the, the thing about um, lining up the shots is it, it's the, the thing that's, that I've been trying to do a lot more recently is just, is just really reading the, the situation Um for myself of what I what I feel like I'm seeing and then trying to to capture that. I used to try to force a lot of classic underwater scenes because you do see a lot of people around the world, a lot of your friends or the, you know, the elder statesmen of underwater photography and stateswomen of yeah. underwater photography in the in the area. You've got, you know, so many people that have gone underwater to take a photo that you know, they're iconic. Um, and so then you go out and you try to recreate a lot of those and um, for a while, you know, none of them looked that great. Uh, and I realized much later that you need to just be very, very loose. It's, it's almost, I mean, um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, are surfers or snowboarders or, you know, mountain bikers and how you have a certain set of moves that you can do to get yourself into the right situation. But then you can tell someone who's over surfing a wave versus someone who's going with what the wave is offering and then doing, you know, Oh, that was like the right move in that section to maintain speed to go over here. 
Um, and so in underwater photography, similarly with your fingers, there's a lot of different moves that you can do. You can, hmm. um, you can open up the, open up the shutter, uh, speed so that stuff gets blurry. If something's moving, you can, uh, stomp down on the aperture so that, you know, there's like more or less depth of field. You can adjust your strobe settings, adjust where the strobes are positioned. You can do a whole bunch of different things to get a certain look, but learning to recognize when the situation presents that look. Um, or yeah. search or searching on your dive for that situation that presents that look instead of trying to force certain a certain move on a certain part of the on the of the dive, and that just comes with yeah. experience and a lot of a lot of uh, very disappointing, teary filled editing nights where you realize that your focus was slightly <laughs> off, your strobe was right. completely out. Like um, the best thing about digital photography that I'm very fortunate to be a part of is not only the editing tools, but also the fact that you can take a thousand photos yeah. and uh, and have one good one. Whereas uh, previous generations, like the previous shootouts in Monterey, you had one roll of film. So I think it was 12 photos or 24 photos or like it was you had the, that many photos. Yeah. And yeah. It, you filled up your roll and then you gave it to the judges um after you developed it and that's all you had and so if, yeah if you had yeah if you just had a black roll that was it and so yeah. <laughs> so i get to try i get to try a lot of different things and then um just that comes with confidence and diving and the reason that i feel like i'm able to do a lot of the photography now that i'm doing is from my training as a scientific diver at uc santa cruz um i didn't really know much about marine biology and the field that I really want to get into, but uh, scientific diving taught me how to be a worker underwater and using mm -hmm. scuba as a way to go do work instead of what, you know, a lot of scuba diving is, which is a vacation. Like I'm going to go yeah, and yeah. dive and have fun. Scientific diving taught me how to do something underwater while being a safe diver. And so not having the diving be secondary, then I can really focus on the shot and the settings and and riding the the wave of the dive in the right way. Yeah, now that's a really important distinction. That's, you know, the folks who've been on, who've been through, who are science divers or have been science divers. And I went through the same program as you with UC Santa Cruz and, oh, that's awesome. and Dave and A. Oh, Dave and Steve, the best. Yeah, yeah. And this is, I, I think, yeah. So this is like, um, I went through it in uh, like 2004, five-ish day. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure we know some of the same folks uh, um, who've been through it. You know, Dave, um, who's also been on the podcast. But it's an it's an interesting distinction because you know scuba diving is rad, and you could be in the Bahamas chilling in 80, 80 foot, hundred foot of visibility in you know eighty degree water, and it's awesome. It has its rigors, and then you could be in the same water, but collecting data or taking shots or pulling the tape or drilling on something, you know, and there's a kind of a different dimension to diving that scientific diving teaches you, like you said, how to do work underwater. And I can, after having done a tat, just a little bit of photography when I was after I did my stuff and actually worked for the program of oh, the aquarium, that's no longer there, but understanding that like, you got to be able to, you're doing work. And so the diving part, the safety, the breathing, the time, the depth, all that stuff is like, it's, it, you got to put it, it's got to be secondary so you can do focus on your work, whether it's shooting an animal or pulling a tape and counting things, you know? And, and one of the things I saw, again, back to your cool uh, shot that I think kind of exemplifies this, this example is there's a great shot that, it's, it looks like you're in the open water, kind of, and there's just a ton of jellies. And I'm 
uh-huh. guessing they're the Browns, like this Chrysler guys. Yes. And you're underneath looking up. There's a little bit of sun just filtering through. It's black and white. And there's a cormorant mm-hmm. that's basically swimming through it. And you know which one I'm talking about. And it struck me as like, that one's insane. I'm, I'm going to keep saying this about all your shots. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's one of those, uh, those things where... You know, if you were focused on your breathing or how deep am I or where am I at with, you know, my my air or whatever that is, you wouldn't have gotten that shot or you wouldn't have been as good, you know. So your ability to, to A, recognize the animals in the scene, but also just be really com- confident doing your work, you know, uh, it just seems like probably makes you just better at what you do. Yeah, and um, it, it's definitely making that – making diving secondary to the task at hand is really what that – UC Santa Cruz dive program taught me. I mean, I, I owe, I think, you know, not only hours, uh, weeks at this point of enjoyment underwater, uh, I, I owe that program just so much joy and wonderful, beautiful moments of, uh, being in nature and seeing just how the planet is working in this other realm. That's just right offshore. I owe that directly to, to the diving program of training me to be a safe diver. But then also i I mean, I wouldn't be able to go diving where I do, doing what I'm doing, uh, taking photos, you know, being the worst buddy in the world because I'm taking a photo of a shrimp for 45 <laughs> minutes, you know, uh, not really paying attention to where everyone else went. Um, that's that safety factor of having good training, good background, making the diving secondary is entirely due to the UC Santa Cruz dive program. And right after I did scientific diving, uh, diving at Big Creek with, uh, with the science program yeah. changed, changed my life because not only was that the first time I went camping, first time I went camping was in, uh, 2010. Oh, wow. Uh, cool. Even, even though my parents grew up camping with their family and everything, we were in, uh, Europe, we were in the foothills of the Alps, we were in Stockholm and there's just, there just wasn't this, uh, camping outdoorsy experience that you have i think when you're in california when you're in the u.s generally in the west where there's just so much open land and space that just kind of going out there whereas in in france from where i was growing up you're always like 15 minutes from some chalet somewhere so why are you camping out so right um so the first time i went camping which i ended up you know going out into nature in the sierras and everything a lot after uh, graduation so 2010 but then that was also the trip where we went diving in Big Sur for the first time. And that, I mean, Big Sur is just wild, as everybody knows. But underwater, it's it's just such a different place. You have this transect line underwater uh, where it's going supposedly north-south. And it has all these kinks and rails and all, or like all these different kinks in the in the in the thing so it doesn't go straight anymore because yeah. it's broken so many times with house-sized boulders that are just rolling through with the massive storms and landing on top of the tape and so people like dave and steve have to go out and run the cable around or yeah. over find where it went and so it's just this wild place that really puts a lot of the ocean's power into perspective seeing these boulders that were not on top of the thing that you're looking at when it was put down yeah. are now rolled over onto it and so going diving in Big Sur, Big Creek, that changed my life. It made me want to go there all the time. So then I did my dive master with the UCDSC program with, uh, with Steve's wife, Cecil, who has trained, I don't know how many thousands of divers, but yep. um, that legacy is, is in, incredible for uh, advancing underwater exploration with scuba. And so then I 
went, you know, for six years after that diving at Big Creek with, with Steve and Dave and as a dive master, as a TA, and you learn to be very self-reliant, very uh, comfortable underwater doing the tasks that you need to do. And that parlayed directly into this underwater photography thing that I've been doing. Great. Yeah, yeah, man. It's just a natural fit, you know. Um, so then on the side, I guess you shouldn't say on the side, but you, this is like a huge passion of yours. But it's also kind of part of your nine to five, right? I mean, tell us what you're doing today. You're working for the Monterey Bay Aquarium, right? Yeah. So my day job, um, mild-mannered underwater Pat when he's above water Pat, uh, <laughs> does um i'm the social media content creator for the monterey bay aquarium um and that is still just such a trippy thing to to say because when i was five years old i saw the sea otters at the aquarium and decided i want to be a marine biologist and work there uh like i mentioned i grew up overseas my parents were missionaries so we moved around a lot in france and lived in sweden and spent my whole life overseas but Every three or four years, we'd come back to Turlock, California, where Dust Bowl Brewing Ooh. is from. So a new brewery that just opened up. Nice. So uh, we'd go to Turlock, California, middle of the Central Valley. And then there would be a week out of the year around Fourth of July where the family would go out to Scotts Valley um, at a conference center up there called Mission Springs, where yeah. uh, my parents got married. And we would spend a week there. And then there was one day out of that week. There was one day where there was no camp program or anything and it was free for all and that would be the day that we would go to the monterey bay aquarium and i would just run in and then uh, i remember being very young and just kind of left in front of the sea otters while my parents went to go see the rest of the exhibits and uh every three or four years after that we'd go we'd visit and so that was always the plan so i'd be in the middle of middle school at le semnose and seno in france and and the the professor would be like, so, uh, you know, what do you guys want to be when you grow up? And people would be like, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a soccer player. I'm going to be a nurse. And they'd get to me and I'd be like, I'm going to be a marine biologist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium in California. <laughs> and they'd, they'd be like, uh, where's that? Like, you don't need to know. I got a plan. Don't worry. Um, and so then I started working. So I did four years at uh, the Seymour Center at Long Marine Lab, which taught me uh, interpretation of uh, science with volunteers and that's really kind of what made me realize that I really didn't enjoy being in front of a, a microscope dealing with the data sets uh, mm-hmm. as much as my 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 friends what I was much more interested in doing was telling a really dumb joke or uh, making some kind of silly video about the science and um, that obviously gets really annoying in a, a lab setting but it turns out the general public is uh, is always ripe for uh, yeah. enjoyment of some kind of silly silly joke about um, about squid ink or, or something and so um, kind of realized that I didn't want to spend as much time in the lab as I wanted to spend time talking to the public and kids and um, their parents and uh, just people who don't know much about the ocean but want to know as much as possible but they don't quite know what questions to ask and so that yeah. really became a passion of mine from the Seymour Center and it was really what kind of gave me my career as well in terms of interpretation because I'd be up on campus learning about paravisceral salomes and polychaete worms and then I'd roll down to the Seymour Center and then the volunteers would be like, so what'd you learn today? It's like, oh, I learned about paravisceral salomes on polychaete worms and they'd be like, 
what's that? <laughs> and then I would say, oh, uh, well, I guess it's the fluid sac around their gut in worms that have a lot of bristles. And they're like, okay, cool. I know that. And then they can go and explain to the visitors like, oh, around their gut, they have this fluid filled sac and that's yeah. their skeleton. Yep. And so translating that hardcore science directly the same day often to volunteers who would then share that with the public is what allowed me to get a job at the aquarium interpreting the animals. And uh, so I've been at the aquarium now. Uh, this is pretty tough to wrap my head around, but I've been there eight and a half years now since wow. I graduated. And I started doing the social media at the aquarium around four and a half years ago, about four years ago when the Big Blue Live was happening. So the BBC and PBS were here filming right. live. Right. And uh, they filmed the first Blue Whale live on, on TV and everything. And that was my first week of work was doing the social media with them. So oh, wow. I got to see the high bar that PBS and the BBC have for their social media accounts. And that's the high bar that we've been trying to maintain uh, ever since. So my nine to five is creating content for the aquarium managing those uh those accounts with my coworker emily and my boss Anne marie and we're on facebook twitter instagram tumblr periscope uh we're starting up a twitch channel youtube i mean all the social media accounts and the aquarium has about three million followers across the social media accounts so during the day my job is to share the aquarium and the aquarium is you know fun interactions with people telling you about the ocean and stuff you want to know more about. And we just try to make the aquarium come alive online. And I've uh, been doing that for a little while now. We've had a lot of fun doing it. I appreciate that, your ability to do that in such a gigantic way because, you know, the ability to put an animal or a topic or a theme into a, into, into a, a manner that the normal population can identify with is not easy. Like it's easy for you and I and other people who dive and love the ocean to see a picture of a little orange rockfish with some black boulders behind it and feels that's a kind of semi visceral or a connection with that little guy, right? But I would kind of wager that the majority of the population they it's they just see a little fish. They go, so what? Who cares? Like what? Okay, fine, it's a fish. But your ability to not only have a photo, um, but also describe it and 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 breathe life into that animal or that theme, that topic, that whale, that piece of kelp, that little slug that just crawls across and scrapes algae. Um, the ability for you to describe those things in a way that people can identify with it. You can't, you, I wouldn't say humanize those things, but you, when you talk about how territorial this guy is or his, his gills will retract when the shadow comes over him, it just helps people to like understand it a little bit better. And when they understand it and they kind of identify with it, I think this is also the theory of behind what you're doing at the aquarium is they might do something to help protect and conserve, whether it's not throwing their trash or maybe it's voting for somebody or maybe it's not stepping on an anemone next time they're at the tide pools because it's just fun to see them squish or whatever, you know? So I think that's a huge, it's a unique skill set you have, you know? So talk a little bit more about that. I mean, like you have this really cool ability to, not only capture these animals or these themes, et cetera, but in the moment, but then I've also noticed in your Instagram feed, the captions you write. And that's, I think, why you're, you've know, been at the aquarium for eight and a half years running their social media, because there's a heavy kind of how do you describe things component to that. But I don't know, like talk about where that came from. There's also this creative side to you, Pat, where you can describe your words you use. It's semi-poetic. It's You tell stories, you know, so just talk about that a little bit. 
Oh, uh, well, first of all, thanks so much for all the kind words there in a row. This is a great start to, to my day. I'm just <laughs> blowing. I might not be able to leave my, my I might not be able to leave my apartment. My head might be too big, so I'm just got to like go like clean up my room or something and like bring me back down. Uh, no, um, so uh, the the thing that I'm that I kind of realized uh, with the Seymour Center work and and everything is. Um, what I so I had no idea what marine biology was until I came and I to California and like I'm going to do marine biology and I I feel like a lot of people uh, in the general public they have this idea of what marine science is what ocean science is it's what they can see in BBC Nat Geo documentaries it's maybe their one ocean science class that they took and the number of stories that we hear. You know, people sending messages to the aquarium saying, oh, I always wanted to be a marine biologist, but then I ended up doing business or I ended up doing this other mm -hmm. thing or kind of, you know, I realized I couldn't swim, I couldn't dive. So I didn't really, you know, want to do that. Um, the, the, the way that marine biology, quote unquote, you know, with you know, capital M, capital B marine biology, the way that that appears to the general public is it, it's so interesting to everyone, but it's so scary or uh, foreign and kind of oh man oh marine biology oh I could never do that you know and the thing that I that I realized uh, subconsciously first and then much more um, uh, front of mind later on is that uh, marine biology in and of itself is it's just like the marine environment where you can go to the tide pools and you're at the beach and you can just see the tide pools and then that is quote unquote the inner tidal but then if you zoom in on it you realize that there are thousands of animals hundreds of species that are all in that same inner tidal some of them are dominant some of them are incredibly common but super important some of them are exceedingly rare but really give that splash to the tide pool and then some are uh just you know kind of there without really even like meaning to and critical for 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 the environment and so yeah that's what i realized is that there's a niche for everyone in marine biology if you show up with a certain set of skills and the knowledge and the interest of I want to be in marine biology I might not be a coder but I can write website you know copy and so now you're part of marine biology and for me there you realize in, in college that you know I mean we can go on uh, at length this different podcast about how college has become the the like this day's um high school diploma where you kind of yeah. need it and the way that college was set up previously is that you know you did high school and then you went into a trade or you did something else and then you went to college if you needed an advanced degree to be able to do something very specific it was job training for something specific and then a lot of academic jobs were then like well you're going to be a TA and then an assistant professor and then you become a professor and there's not enough tenured professor positions for everyone but that's kind of what the system is designed to get you into doing is you're going to go into right. research you're going to do postdoc you're going to go do you know get your PhD letters at, at the end of your name boom like uh, off you go but then the rest of the world the has so much interest in marine biology and so much interest in the topic that there's room for you know, if you don't know much about uh, coding or statistics or anything, but you know how to scuba dive, you can be a scientific diver. Or if you can't dive, but you're a really good mechanic, um, you might be the one driving the boat, taking care of the boat. Or maybe you're yeah. the person that does the, the graphics so that the, 
science paper looks really awesome. And, you know, there's all these different niches and you realize that it's so, marine biology is a thousand different jobs, a hundred different niches that you can be a part of. And so what I realized from um, growing up multilingually uh, that I just have this word association syndrome in my head mm. where, um, you know, the puns and the jokes and the, and the, the writing, um, it's because my brain was just trained from a very young age to treat language in a very playful way and in a very, um, like my, I'm just really, there's just something where I'm really good at hearing words and their meaning and associating them very quickly with things that are related because that was basically my survival mechanism in, in college or in, in high school before I got to, to college where people are speaking Swedish. I don't really understand Swedish, but cons cons the context helps me understand, oh, well, th here's what's going on. And so yeah. then it kind of helps you go through. So understanding the larger context of where something arrives in is just kind of built in in the back there. Then I'm a middle child. And so middle child syndrome is real where <laughs> you want attention. And so, you know, a lot of people are terrified of public speaking um, and rightly so. It's a it's an insane proposition to get up in front of a whole bunch of people and yeah. expect them to listen to you as if you somehow have answers, you know. And, but for me, I've always loved performing and getting up in front of people. And it's only after the fact that I'm like, oh, wait, did, did I say the right thing? Was that OK? Yeah. So so, I, you know, put me in front of a microphone, put me in front of an audience. Uh, I will talk forever. And it's only when we're done with this podcast that I'm going to sit down and be like, oh, my gosh, did I say the right thing? Does <laughs> Josh like me? You know, that'll happen. Oh, that'll yeah. happen after. Um, so that particular quirk of like the word association, the like being fine on on camera. And then, um, you know, just the way that the Internet shaped me being in Sweden, um, it was dark at 3 p.m. in the afternoon for six months out of the year. Um, so, you you know, you'd go yeah. to school in the dark. You'd have your four hours of sunlight during your lunch break and like otherwise you're sitting inside and then you go home and it's dark. And so many of my friends uh, or like one of my friends specifically, he was a professional World of Warcraft player while we were in high school because wow. you just had so much computer time. And so because of lax download laws in Sweden at the time, I was playing with Photoshop and Premiere and all these different programs that, you know, most people, I'd say, you know, a lot of people who grew up where it's nice to go outside all the time are probably not spending as much time on a computer as I did growing up. And so I grew up in the internet. I grew up with the editing software, mm -hmm. had very formative experiences in high school. And so I show up to the marine biology scene because that's what I want to do. And I know uh, how to play around with language and I don't mind being up in front of people and I can also be on the computer. And then lo and behold, social media shows up as a job and it's basically my perfect, mm -hmm. my perfect niche or, you know, underwater photography and writing and, and everything. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's it's one of those things that I try to tell the, the students that come to the to the aquarium, the teens and everyone is that there's there's a, a Venn diagram that is really important to guide your guide your career, which is that there's the stuff that you like to do, which are your hobbies and skill or like the things that you enjoy doing. And then there's the stuff that you're good at. And so yeah. if you're doing something that you like to do and you're not particularly good at it, that's that's a hobby. And then if you're really good at something, but you hate doing it or like you don't like it's not something that really drives a passion in you. 
that's a skill or a talent. And you want to aim in that Venn yeah. diagram the overlap of the skills and the and the interests because that's going to be where your where your niche is. Um, so like I, you know, I really enjoy cooking, but I'm not a chef. But mm -hmm. I enjoy taking photos underwater, and people really respond to that. And so I started aiming for that. And so I just tell the students, you know, pay attention to what people tell you you're really good at doing and believe them, you know, like, Hey, I, I like your writing or Hey, like you're amazing with code, follow that. And then you can wind up aiming for that sweet spot of where, um, you can best be in your niche in that, in that marine biology mm -hmm. environment. And so just having Instagram and like as my public diary and just playing around with alliteration. And I feel like I kind of have like a rhyme book of, of, uh, marine <laughs> biology concepts that come up where like, you know, this, that means the other thing. And, yeah. uh, so yeah, now, so that's kind of how, how I made it where I'm at here. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, a couple of things. One is like, uh, really admire you for finding sort of or, or that Venn diagram of your interests and skills that overlap, you know, so many people, and I'd probably include myself to kind of search for that kind of happy medium. And um, you've definitely found it, which is just really neat to see. But kind of going back to what you mentioned, too, is that like the the fate, there are many faces of marine biology, as you mentioned, you know, and I can completely relate, like having done, you know, some a fish biology undergrad at UC Davis, working for NOAA, we were part of the aquarium for a while and mm -hmm. and what i ended up doing was is similar to you but not as poetic was just like disseminating information it was like built a website and i dove but i learned to code you know and there's four thousand different sort of faces of marine biology and for like you don't know that when you're going through it as you mentioned when you're in these science classes it's science 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 it's science science and that's all good but you don't understand it's not like you're not taught the different options you may have in front of you like oh wow you're good at photography or wow you're really good at writing or wow you like graphic design a lot of different things you mentioned there's so many different ways to apply that and for for like folks listening who i don't have a firm grasp of the demographic but i'm you know a lot of them are like you know my age and older probably who have kids one thing is like if your kid and i even say this to my own kids is like look if you love the ocean like go do marine biology degree don't stress out on jobs are hard to find or you have to move around the world if you want to be a you know a professor somewhere you can apply that as you are today patent as you mentioned like in a number of different ways you know once you have that base you can then overlay like the skills you have the hard skills whether it's dumb mm -hmm. man you're really good at statistics or you're really good at writing whatever that is you know and, and i think that's really important you know and something i wish they taught you know was like a course so it's like you're going to do marine biology the reality of you being a professor <laughs> pretty slim because those jobs right. are really hard to find. That's cool. But there's a bunch of other things you can go do, you know, beyond. So let me uh, switch gears a little bit here. Um, yeah. I love all that stuff, man, but there's some stuff and this is like on my, my bucket list continues to grow as I have folks on the podcast. And thanks to you, I've added one more, one more bucket list item, which is diving in Cabo Palmo. Oh, sick. Yeah. Which is folks who might know off the top of their head or folks who might not, it's like this insane this location where this is insane aggregation of fish, like to the tunes of, I don't even know, man. I mean, to talk, talk about this special place. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it's so Cabo Pulmo is something that, that kind of, um, that kind of popped up on, on the radar for most people with mission blue and Sylvia Earl. She talked about, it. it's one of her hope spots. Mm. Uh, and you know, the Monterey Bay is one of those hope, hope spots for her. Basically, the uh, the premise being that there are different areas in the world that are less sullied than others in the marine environment. If you consider 
the effects that industrial fishing have had globally for hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, um, the, the ocean is bare compared to what it used to be. The shifting baseline of what we consider to be an amazing natural spectacle compared to what it was previously yeah. is pretty sobering. Um, and that probably that's one of the most formative books that I read was uh, The Unnatural History of the Sea by Caleb Roberts. I don't know if oh. anyone out there has read that, but um, it really showed me how the ocean is you know um the the term i the term i had for a very melancholic instagram post that i haven't posted yet but that was happening around world oceans day is that um the brilliance of the natural world is the dimmest that it's been in human existence um but that's kind of how it it has been overall for just a very long time um since people started getting really really good at uh at utilizing natural resources and mining the environment for for our use but um Cabo Pulmo is one of those places where the the fishing community made a decision to stop commercial fishing and switch over to an ecotourism model uh, because of the unique position that they have where Cabo Pulmo straddles the line between the Sea of Cortez and the open Pacific Ocean. And because of that, they, and they have a deep sea canyon just offshore. And so because of that, the migratory nature of a lot of these animals coming through the area they have the capacity to protect a lot of animals within that within that zone. Um, and so Cabo Pulmo is mentioned in the log from the Sea of Cortez. If uh, your listeners out oh. there have read John Steinbeck, uh, they stop at Pulmo Reef, yeah. which was written about. It says it's the oldest coral reef uh, in the Sea of Cortez. The definition of a coral reef um, is it's not the it's not it doesn't look exactly the same as a coral reef that you would find in Fiji or something. But it, there's yeah. an area with living coral on top of ancient dead coral uh very very old stuff and so they go to sample that reef and there's people that come out on the boat and it's the passage where the the people from the shore are coming out with their um they have shirts over their their faces because they were worried about the diseases that white people were were bringing down into the area um, so when they were down there in the 1930s, it would have been a member of the Castro family. Uh, the town of Cabo Pulmo is about 80 people that live there year round. And the majority of them, I um, mean, it's probably more now, but the majority of them are from one family, which is the Castro uh, family. And it was Jesus Castro uh, long time ago, back in the, uh, I forget exactly when, who kind of set up that, that community around fishing and then eventually his ancestors his uh, family set it up towards the the modern uh way that they're that they're doing where they've protected their three miles basically of coastline that they control and they set it up as a national park and so members of that family went out to see john steinbeck and ed ricketts and the rest of the crew of the western flyer uh back in Mm. the in the 30s and or back in the 1939 and now uh, they're the ones protecting that that same that same zone, uh, based you know very similar. It's a very similar concept to what we have in the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary and the different marine right. protected areas and marine reserves that we are very fortunate to have in, in California. And I believe the number is that within 20 years, the bio the biomass of the reserve uh, went up something like 400 percent. And so within that zone where, and you know, the fish move in and out of it, but within that zone, 
you have this massive school of big eye Trevally Jacks. It's it's a very very famous photo that one of um, oh, I'm blanking on his name right now, but uh, an awesome Mexican photographer took this photo of a diver standing on the bottom uh, in the sand, 60 feet deep, and there's this tornado of fish that are yeah. coming down at him, and so that Cabo Pulmo is essentially beginning to look like how the entirety of the Sea of Cortez looked in the era of Cousteau and Sylvia Earle when they were visiting. Uh, Cousteau called the Sea of Cortez the aquarium of the world. It was considered just such a a diverse area. And it was almost completely fished out. And they mentioned this in the log from Sea of Cortez, um, the industrial fishing that was happening from, I think at the time it was Japanese or Chinese, uh, shrimp trawlers were were out there. So um, industrialized, globalized fishing has been going on for a lot longer than Seafood Watch and our awareness of sustainable seafood has been going on. Just happening back then when they visited and so these fishermen uh you know it's crazy you're you're out on these pongas with um these fishermen turned dive guides and they have all these lineups like there's no gps there's like they'll find you the reef and the wreck just by the lineups that they have along the coast because yeah. that's where they would go and fish you bail out you dive down and it's like diving into a dream as far as like last year i think was the best that best conditions that i've ever seen we had the the school of jacks, which is, I, I mean, it's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands strong, yeah. and it just goes on forever. Wow. Um, like you can't see the end of them. We were diving with bull sharks. There's a, a PhD student down there from La Paz saying that the bull sharks of Cabo Pulmo bring in a million plus dollars every year in ecotourism because oh, of the cool. only areas in the world you can go diving with bull sharks. And they're not chummed. You just get to see them yeah. in their natural habitat. So you're diving with bull sharks, you're diving with huge gulf groupers and all these fish species that were basically going extinct and it was when the local community decided we're going to protect this area that the fish started to recover and so that's really something with the aquariums work and in ocean conservation what i what i really you know the the thing i have to remind myself when i'm feeling really down about it is that the ocean does get better when we when we do the right thing it's it's been seen over and over all these different areas like with the whales in our area, we stopped whaling them, and now there's more whales. Down in yeah. Cabo Pulmo, there's no more fish. We stopped fishing, now there's more fish. And figuring out how to make economic prosperity be tied to living organisms instead of them sold at market is yeah. really the crux. But we figured it out with a, a bunch of different areas. Like There's a global fleet of whale watch boats that's making a, you know several billion dollars, I think, every mm-hmm. year it is, to... Uh, effectively watch a whale breathe in and breathe out and then dive down which is what whales are doing all the time it's incredibly sustainable i'm sure the (laughs) whales the whales are coming up to the boats to be like i saw a human throw up off the side of the boat i've never (laughs) seen that you know like it's like the spectacle of nature of seeing a large animal breathing in is worth a lot of money the aquarium is a really good example of that too our building used to make money by taking fish, putting them into cans and selling them. And now right. we just put the fish in the tank and people pay us good money to go and look at them. Like yeah. it's a, we, our value system with the ocean has changed completely 180 degrees because we appreciate them being alive. And I think that is part of the philosophy that goes back to what um, you asked previously and I, I forgot to answer, but um, the thing about making the animals come alive to, to people is that the like everybody loves wildlife and they love animals and they love nature 
but they don't know how to approach something that is so foreign to them as maybe like a tunicate or a sponge or a squid. So they have this inherent curiosity about it, but the, their interaction with it is, is very like, they don't know what questions to ask. And so with staff at the aquarium, you know, that are new and myself included when I first started, like you get annoyed after a while, people are asking you like, how old, (laughs) how old does something get? How big does something get? You tell boys from girls and you, you're like, well, you, can't and like we don't know and like but those are easy questions for people to ask they know that stuff have an age they grow to a certain size there are probably males and females or some kind of reproduction going on there and so they ask that question and they they're asking you that question not because that answer is the most important answer it's the answer after or the next bit of information that's really going to drive their curiosity and so mm-hmm. with interpreting the animals, one thing that I learned from, you know, some stand-up comedy and, uh, and improv is the idea of like the yes and with, with the audience where they ask you something, that's the yeah. beginning of the premise, you build on it and you keep building on it. If you just say like, oh, it gets to be 15 years old, great, they have that information. They don't care about how old something is. They could look that up later. What they want to know is they want to know what it's like to be that animal or to know about that animal yeah. because you yeah. really know a lot about that animal. Whereas I'm over here, you know, I'm I'm a plumber, so I know how to make the the feces go out of your home, which is an incredibly <laughs> important job. But we don't we don't go and visit plumbing museums necessarily. Right. Like we, you know, so so that so this idea that this idea that you know marine biology and scientists in general are better than other people is mm-hmm. is something that you learn in academia, and it's important to realize that scientists and and knowledge about the ocean that's a niche thing in the larger tide pool of how society is working so you know the marine biologist is driving to the to the site on a road that someone planned out and paved and graded and and you're eating food someone else grew and brought to you so keeping a mindset of we're all connected i'm not better than somebody else because i know more about the ocean they're in my house right now wanting to know more about what I know about because I live here. Mm-hmm. It's my job. It's my duty to share what I know with them in a way that they're able to connect with it. And that's why I like to dive and take photos because it's incredible that I am geographically, economically, and physiologically able to dive. Some people mm-hmm. are born, they get a science infection, and they're not able to dive because of surgery that they had to have when they, when they were a kid. They have no choice in that. A lot of people are not going to be able to afford underwater photography equipment. And I'm only able to do so because REI gave me a huge credit limit. Um, You know, (laughs) you, uh, you know, not everyone can afford to live in this area, no matter what big little lies tells you. So it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's almost, it's almost my, the way that I can make that unfairness ledger, the way I balance that is by sharing what, what I know. And so when people come to the aquarium, they've paid good money, they need to learn something. And the last thing you want is this snotty attitude of like, oh, well, what's this? It's a starfish. And it's like, well, first of all, it's not a fish. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, that's kind of how science can be if because if, you're taught to be so accurate, so precise that you lose the meaning of what it is that you're trying to share. And so with, you know, something that one of the founders of the aquarium shared, it's like, you know, don't correct someone based on the name of something because the name has changed forever the scientific name is probably going to change when some taxonomist gets gets the genetic sample back you know like yeah what something is changes what it means doesn't what it does doesn't and Mm -hmm. so 
if it's like, oh, it's a starfish. No, it's it's a sea star. We don't say it's a starfish. It's like, well, it's not a ball of fusion suspended by its own gravity in space either. So calling it a star is inaccurate. Just move on from like, that's a starfish. Yes. And did you know they're not even fish? They're echinoderms. Echinoderms are these crazy animals. And you just move on with that. And so, so then when it comes to the animals and the wildlife like in Cabo Pulmo, you wouldn't know that there's a resurgence of life out there without people going and, and taking those photos and, and sharing them and letting people know that, hey, you know, these animals, we overfish them, but they have this inherent value uh, in being beautiful and wonderful. And, and you can go and catch uh, the ones that leave the reserve sustainably. And it's like having this bank account, you harvest the interest. It's like mm-hmm. all those things, you, you let people know, you bring them into that world and they, they come to understand it a lot better. And so the... The, the term that you said earlier was like humanize the animals. And, I, and for me, um, it's, definitely, it's definitely that. It's, um, there's reticence in marine science, conservation, everything of anthropomorphizing something. And anthropomorphizing is wrong. Um, but anthroempathizing is entirely accurate. So the, yeah. the example that, yeah, I, that, that I give, it's like, yeah, if you have, if you have a monkey that's smiling and you're like oh look at the monkey it's smiling oh it's so cute oh it must be happy that's anthropomorphism and it's wrong because the monkey is smiling because it's terrified it's scared of you it's mad it wants you to get back (laughs) so if you realize that it's smiling being happy is anthropomorphic but you know that the monkey is actually trying to tell you get back i hate you then having the monkey be like yo man better back up look at these teeth i'm gonna bite (laughs) your face Right. <laughs> You've given the monkey a voice to tell accurately what it is that what that it's doing. <clears throat> and so some people will be like, well, it doesn't talk or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. It's trying to tell you something that you can relate to because humans are biological entities. We're social animals. We have the exact same cues as everything else. You got to eat. You got to not get eaten. And you got to reproduce at the end of the day. That's what drives most of human behavior at some point. <laughs> and that's what animals are doing as well. And so instead of looking at animals as weirdly shaped humans with the same motivations and thought process that we do, if you give an animal that moment of, of benefit of the doubt, like, okay, what you're doing, I don't understand it, but what is it that you're trying to get done? Then you really start to see that every animal is a genius unto itself because it's in its own niche. It's doing something mm-hmm. that we can either learn from uh, or we can acknowledge that it's trying to do something that is not at all foreign to the human experience. And so figuring out what those animals are up to, figuring out what the system is up to in the role of science is really crucial. And then where I come in and my colleagues in the science interpretation world is, okay, so this is what the organism is doing. How can I share that with someone where they understand that oh, when the sea otter is doing this, here's what it's doing, which is similar to you, or here's what the sea star is doing. And so, you know, a great example is like, you have a bat star, it takes its stomach out of its mouth and it puts it on some seagrass to digest the food out there. You can tell someone that, oh, it has an invertible stomach, blah, blah, blah. Or if you say, hey, imagine you have a sandwich on a plate and you took your, instead of chewing the sandwich, you take your stomach out of your mouth, you put it on the plate, you wait a little bit, and then you swallow your stomach back in and the plate is clean. Wouldn't that make Thanksgiving maybe better or worse? Depends on your family, right? And so that and so that's a joke that I've been telling for a decade now. Yeah. 
but you can see people get it like yeah oh, it resonates a barnacle uses its legs to catch food out of the water imagine if when you went to the grocery store instead of picking stuff off of the shelf you just had someone run by the shelf and you're sticking your legs out from the cart and you're just knocking stuff into the cart whatever you can knock off the shelf it would be mayhem in in the whole foods and people and so that is yeah empathizing. that's getting and so then when you say hey and so barnacles they're plankton. They're drifting through life with no real direction. That's what plankton means. You probably have a bunch of friends that are plankton right now. Mm-hmm. Those drifters, they eventually settle out on the reef. And so if something's happening far away in the open ocean, like climate change is, is affecting where the currents are going, or maybe ocean acidification is making it harder for those barnacles, then you have less kickboxing shoppers happening on the reef. And then people are like, oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah. It's nothing complicated that you've just said, but you've just put it in terms where people can understand that a crustacean that pile drives its face into the ground and uses its legs to feed on is intimately connected to something that someone else is familiar with that is much larger, and all it took was filling in that gap of information. And that's yeah. what, And that's what happens with so much ocean conservation messaging is that we miss that filling in point. You have the scientists saying, okay, plastic is a problem. And then you have the messaging going, okay, well, so no more straws. And for a lot of people, they're like, wait, straws, how is my straw causing this issue? It might be, it is, but if you don't have that information of like, so I turn on my car and that's making a heat wave happen in Europe, get out of here. Like that's not, ha- you know, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. And, and it is because none of that information has been filled in. And so that's where the role of science communication and everything mm-hmm. of filling in that gap is so crucial. And then hopefully with the aquarium and, and the work that I'm doing, it's filled in in a way where people are lifted up emotionally so that you know it's it's funny it's entertaining they feel like they get it so that then when we have to drop the emotional elevator out from under them they land somewhere function yeah. to be able to do something for for the for the environment uh, yeah. dealing with so many issues all day long you know got to pick up the kids a bill came in that I wasn't expecting my knee hurts do I need surgery and then you're out here being like, oh, and by the way, that smoothie that you got this morning is literally killing turtles. Uh, you're a horrible person. Like you can't, <laughs> can't function in a world where every problem is an individual's problem. You can only function in a world where we're all on team human trying to figure out how to adjust our behavior. And in places like Cabo Pulmo, in places like the Monterey Bay, you can see how every conservation issue is ultimately a human response issue where this local population in Cabo Pulmo saw that their fish were going away and they they said we're protecting our zone and now they're making millions and millions of dollars from people like me going down there to look at fish and mm-hmm. take a photo and that's, yeah, that's awesome that's where that's where we can get when we realize that our human response to the science to what's happening out there is what ultimately drives drives the success and humans want to be told stories they want to be yeah. talked to like a human so got it if you can talk to humans you'll fix all of the all of the issues that that humans face yeah man i mean it's a it's a skill to have and i you know definitely it's an it's it's so important these days again to be able to put these things in terms that the average everyday person who may have never even swam in the ocean potentially can understand and identify with you know um 
and it's cool. And I've also kind of noticed the next generation in air quotes of like, at least marine researchers that I've interacted with in the past, maybe 10 ish years. And most recently, Josh Smith, you, know, you might have even dove with yeah. through your science diving. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, there's a lot, it was a much bigger focus on these researchers doing really good science, mm-hmm. of course, um, but also sharing, disseminating, putting what they're doing in terms, at least at some degree, that the normal public can understand, you know, and he's working on this really cool thing, as you probably know, with the urchins yep. and the kelp and, you know, the urchin bears and all that stuff. And and anyway, I think it's more important. And I, I think it looks like the next generation of researcher is, is starting to do that. Because I remember I had a discussion with um, an individual who was, I would call the old school researcher, which is great, not to diminish anybody, who was tracking elephant seals, you know, and showing their depth, their, their dives, right? The elephant seals, these things dive like 2,000 feet deep for like whatever, 20 minutes or more, you know? And it's fascinating. I remember having this discussion with them, but I had to, it was like pulling teeth to extract from this 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 person what they were actually doing and why they were doing it. Because so, there was like this crazy story. Why is that thing diving 2,000 mm-hmm. feet? And what allows it to dive 2,000 feet? I was like, dude, that's a, such an insanely cool story. But it was the, the old guard was more used to just tracking the data and doing something with the data versus being able to spin the data in a story that people could identify with, you know. But I mean, times have changed for sure. But um, but anyway, I love all the stuff you're doing, Pat. Pat and, and thanks for giving us like the description of Cabo Pomo. And there's so many different pieces of what we were just talking about that I could just drill into for another couple hours <laughs> around, you know, the uh, just the resiliency of the ocean, these, these these protected areas and everything. But I want to thank you, man, for first coming on today, but also just putting your energy and skills into what you're doing because you're i'd see you as a talented person you could probably be making like a ton more money doing something more like in the businessy corporate world um, but you've chosen to really apply your skills into something that's meaningful to you meaningful to me and everybody else listening and which is good for the ocean man so so thanks again for being here today and doing all of that <laughs> oh well yeah uh, thanks so much i mean you know those those larger companies that could pay me more they're 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 doing fine or maybe they're not doing fine maybe they're doing horrible maybe they're ruining western democracy but um at least at the end of the day i feel like if you can find your your niche you you know you're you're just gonna feel good about your your moments on on the planet not only from what you're able to see when you're doing it but also the the joy that you're hopefully bringing to to other people and just knowing that we're all in this great big spaceship Earth, you know, hurtling through space uh, all together, just knowing that the rest of your planetary community, at least the humans that are able to understand, uh, hopefully, the language that you have, uh, bringing them joy and understanding and helping them uh, learn more about what's going on on the planet. I mean, that's that's a philosophical win, even if we can't always fix all of the issues that, that we wish we could fix uh, right yep. away. Yep. Solid, and if anything, man. and if anything, then you get you get to do a podcast in the morning, drinking some coffee and eating a croissant, looking at the ocean, uh, and that's a pretty good life. I don't I don't mind it. That's awesome, man. No, it's not at all. Not at all. Well, cool, man. Pat, thanks so much. I really appreciate this and enjoyed it. And uh, man, we'll just keep tracking you on Instagram and and uh, seeing all the rad stuff you're doing, man. So so thanks again for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. Right on. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening uh, to another podcast episode. Can't do it without you. 
and uh, so thrilled to have you here supporting uh, myself and the podcast and all the guests uh, continually. Always appreciate a positive um, rating on your uh, your podcast app, whether it be you know Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, you name it. Just helps helps grow the podcast and uh, spread awareness. So thanks for that. And then any uh, social media mentions, always super appreciative. And uh, if you know somebody who you think would be great to have on the podcast to share the, about their ocean life, please hit me up. I'd love to chat with them. Or if you think you'd like to, let me know. Uh, email is josh at thisoceanlife.tv. All right. Thanks, guys.